All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get started in the Word tonight. We're in Mark chapter 16. As we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're almost done with it. And I'll tell you kind of about where we're going after Mark. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, God, for this time. We thank you for your Word, your unchanging, powerful, active Word, Lord. This living Word, God, that changes our hearts, Lord. It moves in us. It washes us. We thank you so much for it. We pray, God, that we would handle it rightly tonight, Lord, that you would uh, apply it to our lives as we go out. Holy Spirit, we just ask for you to reveal to us things that we need to confront, Lord, things that we need to change. Lord, if we need to be encouraged, encourage us, Lord. Father, if we need to be lifted up, lift us up. Uh, Whatever we need, Lord, we just ask Holy Spirit for you to do the work tonight and uh, for you to be honored. And we just thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Mark 16, but before we get started, where are we going after Mark? Well, we're going to have about two weeks. Uh, We're going to kind of dive into a deeper spot of Mark 16 next week, uh, and uh, we'll explain why later. But uh, next week, for the next couple weeks, we're going to have a a couple of topical messages before we start the next book of the Bible. Um, Then we're going to go into the book of Jude. The last epistle, the epistle of Jude, which is the one chapter letter right before Revelation. And then we're going to start the book of Revelation. Um, And it's one of those things I've been praying about deeply and uh, actually since about Mark chapter 4. I've been praying, Lord, where do you want me to go next? Lord, where do you want me to go next? Um, And uh, Revelation keeps coming up in my my mind and my heart. And uh, I, I was saying, well, how about Romans? How about Galatians? Uh, those are areas where I'm definitely much more comfortable with, and uh, the Lord has just keep impressing upon my heart no revelation, and I talked to Pastor Rod, and he said, okay, good luck, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and just so you know, we've never actually taught through the book of Revelation in this church yet. Uh, we've taught like the first four chapters, which is what most churches do, four chapters, and then, okay, <laughs> let's go on to something else. But we're going to teach through it, and we're going to get into, go through the book of Revelation and after that. So it'll be an exciting journey, and I hope you'll join us for that and, and be with us as we get into the um, things to come, as, uh, in what we're going to call the series. So that'll be fun. Before we get started tonight in the scripture, I, I don't know if you're a fan of Star Wars or not. I've always been a fan of Star Wars I, since I was born the first Star I, In fact, I was born in 1976, so I think Star Wars was actually made for me. It was like George knew I was coming to the world, and, and it, well, actually the year after, 1977. And uh, the, the movie Star Wars is such a great film, uh, and I got so excited when my middle daughter, Claire, got excited about Star Wars. She, she was at Disneyland uh, with my wife and uh, her sisters, and she went on star tours, and she saw that you could make lightsabers. And she wanted a lightsaber. And so she went and told my wife, I, like, can I get a lightsaber? And my wife said, not until you've watched all the Star Wars movies. Now, I'm not sure if my wife was like encouraging her or maybe trying to, to, to maybe, well, maybe you'll not like these and not watch them all. I'm not really sure. But 
Claire started watching all the Star Wars movies, and, and we did it the right way. I know some of you fans out there are like, okay, well, how did you do it? That's the first question I ask. What, what, how did you show them? We started with episode four, Final Hope, Star Wars, then Empire Strikes Back, then Return of the Jedi, and then we went back to Phantom Menace. And, of course, Claire, once she found out that Darth Vader was Luke's dad, she was spoiling it to everyone who hasn't seen it, you know. <laughs> like, no, you can't do that. But I love, I love the story of Star Wars, and, and I think it, maybe it's not Star Wars for you, but we love stories where we see that hero's journey, that, that hero, the arc uh, of the hero's journey where the hero starts out and you're like, yep, that's the guy, he's the hero, and, and he, he even has some qualities about him that is victorious or strong or, or good. There's these qualities about the hero that you're like, yeah, he's definitely the guy I want to root for. But then along this journey... The hero hits hardship. And when we see that in the story, we're like, oh, and of course, Empire Strikes Back is, is the worst. And amazingly, it's one of the favorite movies of Star Wars fans, Empire Strikes Back. Some say it's because of the musical score. Others, just because of how it ends. It ends really with defeat for the hero. We see Luke, who is going to confront Darth Vader, and he's doing it so bullied. Yeah, he hasn't had time to finish his Jedi training, but he is brave. And he's not afraid to save his friends. It's so noble a quest, yet it ends in total defeat and a missing hand. And, uh, of course, after Claire saw that part of the story, she went to school and she, she wrapped a paper around her hand and colored it. And, like, that's my, my fake hand. And here's my lightsaber. She was building them at school and stuff. And uh, I know the teachers wonder about Claire. But, you know, <laughs> what can I say? She's awesome. So they wonder about me too. In fact, they still do, but anyway. No. But uh, so Luke just ends in defeat. And then, of course, Return of the Jedi happens, and we see a totally different Luke. He's had time for training. And we see, it, we see a new Luke Skywalker as he enters into Jabba's hut, and he just is like waving his hand, and people are like, whatever you want, whatever you want. You're like, wow, he's powerful. And, uh, of course, Return of the Jedi ends in victory for the rebels. And we love stories like that. We can identify with stories like that. We love a good hero's journey has that time of defeat and then the victory that comes uh, behind it. Although we love the story, we sure, certainly don't like it in our own lives, do we? You know, when we, we, we tend, to, tend to say like, well, I'd love to watch somebody else suffer through this whole thing and then come out victorious. Yeah, what a great movie. But when it's actually happening in our own lives, we just want victory all the time. I mean, that's what we desire to have, just victory. Like, we don't want the hardships. We don't want the heartache. We don't want to be failures at any point in time. Although it makes for a great story, it's not the story we want for ourselves, is it? Well, tonight as we look at the, the resurrection account of Jesus Christ in the story of Mark, this is not... Something that we read about just for a good story. It's not, it's not a, a made-up, fanciful story. This is real life. And so I want you to just consider that as we approach this, that after the cross, at the crucifixion of Christ, this is real life with real people. People who were defeated. People that saw their Savior, their Messiah, nailed to a cross. They saw hours of torture happening to our Lord and Savior, and then nailed to that cross, and then finally bowing his head and breathing his last breath. Defeat is what they experienced. 
And, and defeat is what they thought they were going to continue experiencing from the accounts, the gospel accounts. They're not expecting the resurrection. Of course, we know what's coming. We know the resurrection is coming, but they're certainly not expecting it. They're still expecting defeat. And we're going to see that in verse 1. Here we go. Oh, uh, yeah, let's start in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for, uh, for trembling and astonishment and seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You know, this story is, as they walk to the tomb, I'm just, I'm so sad as I, I picture put myself in their shoes of what they were feeling, what they were experiencing. I mean, they entered into Jerusalem the Sunday prior, and it was awesome. People came out waving palm branches. Hosanna in the highest. People were singing God's praises. They were saying, the Lord saves us. That's Hosanna in the highest. The Lord, he saves us. It's all about God. And they're waving their branches, this fanfare. They go out into the street, uh, out of the city to meet Jesus waving their branches, laying their cloaks on the floor as Jesus comes in riding on that donkey. I mean, the week starts out so awesome. And, and these are the people that have been working with Jesus and, and walking with him for such a long time. These women, we know, had also been supporting Jesus in his ministry. We read in Luke chapter 8 that, that they had, not only had Mary been the one who Jesus had cast demons out of, but also some of these other women and, and these women are somewhat insignificant in Jesus' day as far as their stature goes. In Jesus' day, women were not reliable witnesses. They were, they were lesser than men and so on. But here we see in the resurrection account, these women are very important. In fact, the disciples are gone. They've fled. They're out of there. Peter has denied his Lord. The one who said, I'll never do it. He's denied the Lord. And these women are there to pick up the pieces, literally. I mean, and I know some of you moms probably can identify with that. Yeah, sometimes I feel like that. I feel like I'm always picking up the trash or dealing with the hard stuff. And, and I want you to know, these women have a very honored place in the gospel accounts. And although in first century you would never have women as the, the ones to look to first for, the, for a testimony or something like that, I love how the gospel just says it like it is. These women, although the men, the disciples had all fled, these women stayed there. They watched Jesus be crucified. They watched him pull down from, from the cross. And unfortunately, because the Sabbath was approaching, they didn't have time to prepare the body like they wanted to. So that's why they're going on Sunday, early on the first day of the week. They're headed to the tomb 
to put the spices on Jesus to prepare him. The Jews would take care of the body all the way to, through decay. Once, once the body had decayed, they would take the bones and they'd take those bones and they'd put it in a little box called an ossuary uh, during first century Judaism. And they would care for that box. Why was that box important? Well, because of the resurrection. That eventually, one day, God is going to bring about a resurrection. He's going to raise everyone up from the dead. The, the righteous Jews and the, those Jews, they're going to all be raised up from the dead. So clearly, we, we need to make sure we have those bones so God can raise them up from the dead. That, that was the thinking there. Of course, nowadays we know that God can do a lot more. He doesn't need the bones. Uh, he can raise up. He can call right, right from the dust uh, us back to life. So... They're on their way to the tomb, defeated, waiting, and the question, well, who's going to roll back the stone? You know, that, that's a good question. And Now, we, in our minds, we imagine all sorts of things about the tomb, but that we know that the tomb was some kind of a small opening because John tells us that when Peter and John get there, they have to stoop down to look in. So we know it's a smaller opening. We know it's a big stone. Because they rolled it away, the women are saying, you know, we're not going to be able to do this. we got to find somebody who can roll the stone away. But there they are heading with the spices, waiting to take care of the body of their Lord. Total defeat. I wonder, are you in that place tonight that you feel even defeated somewhat by life? Feel dragged down or bogged down or in some way aren't experiencing the resurrection? I, I know that these women can totally identify with wherever you're at, and you probably with them. We all know what it's like to be beat down in the, in the journey. We all know what it's like. It's, it's a terrible place to be. It's a place of hardship. It's a place of tears. It's, it, it's a place sometimes where there aren't enough tears to keep coming. It's a place that wants to keep us from getting up in the morning, it's a place that wants to keep us from living to the fullest that we could because we're defeated. But these women, they get up. The disciples aren't there. They get up. They go, all right, let's go take care of the body of our Lord. This is kind of, we're still saying goodbye. They get there and it says they were alarmed because they see the tomb open. They see this young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. That's, that word alarmed is the same word in the Greek that Jesus was troubled in his soul on the night before the crucifixion. They were really concerned. Now, Jesus had prophesied, I'm going to raise from the dead. They, they believed he was going to raise from the dead, but not now, not really literally three days after he had crucified. The, the, the women and the disciples all thought in the future, at the resurrection, that's when he's going to raise from the dead. In fact, this isn't even a Jewish idea, this whole resurrection thing, which adds to the validity of the account that they were going to take care of a body. They didn't actually think that Jesus was really going to rise from the dead. And I just want to say this. God is powerful, all-powerful. It is not our faith that empowers God. God is going to do his work whether we have faith or not. It is our faith that, that often accesses the power of God. But, but, but these, Jesus was going to raise from the dead whether the disciples believed it or not. Because God had said it. God raised him from the dead. And there he is. They get there and they're like, wait a minute, this isn't what's supposed to happen. This isn't, this isn't what we were planning on. 
we're coming to take care of the body. And so they're troubled. And then the angel tells them, don't be alarmed. Now, Luke records two angels there. Um, Matthew records a little more um, an earthquake and, and uh, more brilliant angels. Here's the thing I want you to realize about the gospel accounts. Each gospel writer is writing an account of what happened. They're doing it in their own words. They're not copying each other. And I want you to realize whether there was one angel or two angels, it's still true. Because here Mark focuses on the one angel. Luke focuses on both angels. In fact, Mark does that often. Remember, he, he focuses on two demons on the other side of the gar- two demon-possessed men on the other side of the garrisons, where the rest of the gospel writers just focus on the one. Scripture is true in all that it affirms. And that's a really important idea to understand. They're not contradictory accounts. They're two accounts. And if they both said exactly the same thing, we would say, okay, well, Matthew and Luke just copied from Mark, and these aren't actual testimonies, eyewitness accounts. These are just Matthew reciting what Mark wrote down and John writing what, what Mark wrote down and so on. But no, these accounts, Mark talks about the one angel in the tomb, and, and he tells them, don't be alarmed. Don't be troubled within your soul. The first thing I'm sure they're thinking is, what would you do with our Lord? It, it wasn't enough that you nailed him to a cross. It wasn't enough that you tortured him. It wasn't enough that you put him to death. I mean, for goodness sakes, all he did was heal people and love people and meet people in their sickness. Can you imagine Mary Magdalene who had been healed from those, that demon possession? who had been in a place where she was an invalid because of the demon possession. Now, I know some of the traditions of the, of the Catholic Church say that she was a prostitute. There's nowhere in Scripture that actually even says that. It's just a tradition that's happened. What we do know from Scripture is that she was demon-possessed. She was incapacitated. Seven demons, the Scripture tells us, were in her. She was under the influence of Satan under the control of Satan, and Jesus met her there in her uncleanliness, he spoke to those demons, kicked them out, and she began following. And same with many of these other women that were following Jesus. Jesus healed from diseases. And you can read Luke chapter 8 if you want. But I'm sure that that's part of what they're thinking. He didn't do anything to deserve this. He healed people. He loved people. He met us where we were at. He showed us a love like we had never experienced before. And it wasn't enough for you to kill him. Now you, you misplace him. You, or you still, you take him away. You, you, what are you going to do now with the body? But, of course, the angel says, <laughs> he's not here. See the place where they laid him? Go, tell his disciples and Peter. I love that. I am confident that God wants Peter to know a very special message. You're still included. You haven't excluded yourself from the grace of God or the love of God. Remember Peter. He's the one who denied Jesus three times. He's the one, I'll never deny you. He's, he, Peter's the one who's always speaking before he thinks. Peter's the one who, who there in the garden sliced off the ear. Um, pretty sure. But Peter is the one who is... Probably the most torn up about denying his Lord. And God says, you're not far from the grace of God. I haven't forgotten about you. Tell Peter. Can you identify with that? Can you identify with being in a place of sinfulness or a place where you've rejected your Lord in your life? 
a place where you are no longer worthy of God? Well, guess what? I want to tell you something. You're in the perfect place to meet God. When you've given up your worthiness of God, that's where you start to meet the grace of God. That's where you meet his mercy. That's where all of a sudden you're going to find out what God's amazing grace is. As we sing that song, This is Amazing Grace, yesterday we were at a conference um, all day, that uh, conference, uh, apologetics conference at Calvary Chapel West Grove, and um, it was all about is uh, Mormonism a different gospel, and, and uh, Art and myself were there and a few others, and uh, as we were listening to the speakers, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting was Bill McKeever, who has a, mission, uh, a ministry in Utah, Every year he goes to Manti, Utah for the pageant. They, they throw a huge pageant in Manti, Utah at the temple. They reenact the Book of Mormon and it's this big deal. All the, all the uh, Mormons come from all over to watch the, the pageant and stuff. And Bill was saying that he's like, I had no problem. I, you know, they play music all the time and they play their Mormon uh, worship songs and stuff. I have no problem with that. I expect it. It's their event. But he goes and he always brings a red wagon and in the red wagon, he has a replica of the golden plates as far as weight and stuff goes. And the, uh, it, the, the interesting thing is, is he has people try to pick them up because it's impossible. They're so heavy. And, and Joseph Smith, you know, he picked these up. He ran miles. He jumped over a river. He fought off three different attackers while holding the plates. And he's trying to show that this isn't possible with what happened. But as he, I'm sorry, I'm going to fix this real fast, sorry. There we go. Maybe that'll help. Um, but as he's there, he's, his goal is not to say, hey, there's no reason to believe in your faith. He's not just trying to shipwreck people's faith. What he's trying to do is show them the amazing grace, the true amazing grace of God. Well, they'll play amazing grace at the temple. And he said, that just irks me. So he asked the question, what's so amazing about grace? You see, for a Mormon, that's a really... Important question. Because the Mormon understanding of grace is, it's, quoting directly from the Book of Mormon, it's by grace after all you can do. After all you can do, then some grace kicks in. The Book of Mormon actually says that, hey, God wouldn't give us a commandment if you couldn't keep it. So you've got to repent of all wrongdoing and then keep the commandments. Then grace kicks in. So what Bill is trying to challenge everybody on is their amazing grace is saying, I mean, most, most of them all think, well, you know, we're a step above because we're, we're really good people. We're doing really good things. And, of course, he's not trying to say that it's bad to be a good person. We all want to be good people. What he's trying to get them to understand is that you can't be good enough without God. It is impossible for you to keep all the commandments. So he's challenging them. Have you repented of all, all your sins? All, you've, you've repented of everything? Oh, yeah, I've repented. So now you've never sinned again? You, you don't struggle at all with sin? You're, you're perfect now? No, but, I mean, but I'm, I'm on my goal. And so he's challenging them. I want you to go next tomorrow when you go to your ward. I want you to ask the oldest people in your ward, have they figured out how to not sin? Have they figured it out yet? And they're like, well, I don't think there's anybody that's figured it out. Exactly. The fact is, is God's grace is proven to us when we're not good enough. Because he knew that we weren't good enough. Remember Jesus, that prayer in the garden? Father, if there's any other way, Take this cup from me. 
There is no other way. Jesus had to go to that cross, and his grace is very amazing. Wherever you're at, if you're in Peter's situation where you've rejected Christ through your life, through sin, whatever, well, guess what? You're in the perfect spot to meet and experience the amazing grace of our God. You're in the perfect spot. So go tell the disciples and Peter. So he's, he's going before you in Galilee. John chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus said it, and I'll just read it to you real fast. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And of course, remember the disciples, they focused just on the first part. I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. I, I'm, I'll be with you. We're not going to do that. And, and they totally missed that second part, I'll go before you to Galilee. Really, if the disciples believed the word of God, they would have just said, oh, let's, uh, okay, Jesus is dead, let's head to Galilee. But they're actually still in Jerusalem. And we know from John's account, the women do go back. They tell John and, and the disciples and Peter, Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb. Of course, John says that the one whom Jesus loved beat the disciple whom Jesus loved beat Peter. So that he makes sure to let us all know that he won the foot race. And, uh, and so we know that they, they go back to the tomb, and they see that the tomb is empty. They marvel at it. They wonder about it. They leave. Mary stays, and Mary is crying. She's weeping, and the gardener comes up, who's actually Jesus, and ministers to her and lets her know that, hey, <laughs> I'm risen from the dead. And so we know, we know that account from John's gospel. Just as he told you, it would be done. Just as Jesus told you, isn't that the way it always works? It's always just as Jesus tells us. He will not lie. He will never lie. It's an awesome thing. Whatever he says he will do, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you want to have life and have it to the abundance, follow me. I'm the good shepherd. Jesus will never lie. Do you believe that? I wonder if you do believe that. Do you believe that you can cast all your cares, your anxieties upon him because he cares for you? Do, do you believe that he's the good shepherd? Do you believe that he, in him, we find life and have it to the abundance? Do you believe that happy is the person, blessed is the person who seeks after his kingdom? Do you believe that? Because I'll tell you right now, everything he says always proves true or is done. Just as he told you, he goes ahead of you into Galilee. Just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for the trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid as they headed back to the disciples. I want to encourage you tonight. <laughs> Maybe you need to experience that very same power of the resurrection. You know, one day we all who trust in Jesus Christ will experience it. I mean, literally, you and I will have a resurrected body. There's two resurrections in the Bible. Two resurrections from the dead. Resurrection to life, and then the resurrection to the judgment and eternal lake of fire. Two resurrections. Paul tells us that the first resurrection we see happening in 1 Corinthians 15 at his coming for, uh, at, for the church. And then, of course, we also see it at the end of the tribulation period, right before, before the millennial reign. That's all part of the first resurrection. But Paul lets us know that if Christ has not risen from the dead, our faith is futile. It's, and it's worthless. We have been, been deceived more than anybody else. 
but he has indeed risen from the dead. And this is what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is, uh, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, futile, and you're, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul goes on to tell us that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, and we do have something to put our hope in and something to celebrate. In the same way that Jesus had a physical resurrection from the grave, so you and I will experience that same resurrection. You and I will experience that same thing. Sometimes this gets a little confusing because of um, Platonic ideas, from ideas that come, have come down through Western culture with Plato. Some people think heaven is, is a, a spiritual place and we're floating around on clouds with harps, like playing our harps and doing something. Or Some people even think we may become spiritual beings or angels or something like that. That's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says that the, incorrupt, or the corruptible will put on incorruptible bodies. Those, the, the things that are causing us to decay and perish will no longer have a hold of us at the resurrection. And once the, the corruptible flesh puts on the incorruptible, we will be like Jesus Christ in that regard. He's the first fruits from the dead. So this is what Paul goes on to say at the end of chapter 15. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. This is when this is going to come to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You may have heard that at funerals. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, when you stand at a, a, a graveside, there is a sting and there is a feeling of defeat whenever you're at a graveside. And I know these women felt that as they were on their way to the tomb that day. And when we read things like <laughs> a taunting chant almost to death, where, oh, death is your victory, where, oh, death is your sting, it's kind of like it's, we don't always see that victory, but I want you to know Jesus is the victory. He is victorious over death. And because he is victorious, any of us who trust in him will also be victorious. And we will be able to say that with confidence, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But it's been swallowed up in victory. Jesus Christ has, has swallowed it up and given us victory over the power of sin and the law. Did you guys catch that? That this resurrection is important to show us victory over the law. The, 
the law, the one we can't keep, the one we're not good enough to keep because the law demands justice. The law absolutely demands justice, and I wonder, do you want justice? You know, we always want justice when it's somebody's done something to us. Have you ever noticed that? We're, we're really big on justice. When somebody has done something against us, oh, we want more than anything justice. And, and it's, it's a part of us. It's being created in the image of God that we desire justice and we want things to be right. We desire it. But of course, when we do something against somebody, we don't want justice so much. <laughs> do you want justice for the things, the commandments you've broken against God? Do you really want justice? Because what justice is, is your death. You're being, you're being cast out into hell. Eternal damnation. That is the justice that you deserve because God is a holy God. He's an infinite God. And you've sinned against an infinite God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, if we really want justice, the law has a hold on us. But God knowing how to justify us while remaining just, sent Jesus Christ in a very timely manner to have vic- give us victory over the law and sin and death. So what, what's been your part in this whole thing? Nothing. Oh, sorry. You contributed to nailing Christ to that cross. That's what, that's what your contribution was. The torture of the Son of God, the murder of the Son of God, that's your contribution. The work of justification is completely on Jesus Christ. That's why we sing about amazing grace. Because it is so amazing that God would reach out from heaven to us. How do you access that power? Well, simply you cry out to Jesus. Lord, I want that. You may want something more than that, something more official. Maybe maybe there's a, a, a particular special prayer do you know that there's no sinner's prayer written in the Bible? Do you, do you know that? I mean, we pray, we pray a sinner's prayer. Well, well, I'll lead you tonight in a sinner's prayer if someone wants to come to the Lord, give their life to the Lord. But I want you to realize there's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. There's no formula for it because you know what? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about you trusting in Jesus and what he's done for your life. Not only do we have a resurrection to look forward to, but, you know, there's something that the resurrection benefits us in this life, not just at the end of life. Have have you thought about the benefits of the resurrection right now? See, I believe that there are a lot of Christians who you would maybe define it as a carnal Christian. Uh, And what I mean is that their hope is in Jesus. They believe Jesus has died for them. They, they, they believe Jesus has paid the price for their sins and, and, and they're, they're, they're forgiven. The grace of God has covered over them. But they're not really living victorious lives. They're, they're still playing around with sin in their life. They're still sitting on the throne of their life, not in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're carnal. They still look at the world in carnal terms and from the eyes of the world. They don't really know what it's like to experience victory. Victory over, over sin. Victory over these things in our lives. And, and sometimes even it, it, we can almost like condemn ourselves through these things as we try to fight with sin or battle with it in our own might. 
we almost start to condemn ourselves, going, I'm not good enough. I'm not. And I want you to realize something. The victorious Christian, the Christian who is spirit-filled and living in the spirit, is the one who says, Jesus, you're on the throne. This guy is only going to screw it up. Jesus, I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to believe what you say. I'm going to act as you say I'll act. And when I screw it up, I'm going to say, Lord, I need you even more. That's the victorious Christian. The victorious Christian is searching the word of God, trying to grow in the word of God, and try to more and more confront themselves to be more and more like Jesus Christ. The carnal Christian, the Christian that doesn't experience that victory of Christ in their life, is the one who comes to church, listens to the word, but then goes out and forgets what was said. Their, their Bibles are, are door stops in the household. Never cracked open, never understanding the word, never being washed by the word of God. Just kind of sitting off to the side. The victorious Christian knows their place. Lord, (laughs) I am a sinner. I don't have any pride left. I recognize that my temper got the best of me. My, My this, what do you have to say about my temper, Lord? What do you have to say to me about my temper? What do you have to say to me about my lust? What do you have to say to me about my bitterness? What do you have to say to me about my slander? You know what the thing about the word of God is? God doesn't treat us like you're a lustful slanderer, just knock you out of the park. No. Go tell about this victory to the disciples and to Peter. Go tell them. God says, put away now things like slander, evil doing, brawling, idolatry. And here's what you're going to put on. Instead of slandering and gossiping people, God says, here's what I want you to start practicing. Lifting people up and encouraging people. Instead of pursuing after the lust of the flesh, now I want you to pursue after the things of God. God doesn't just say, you suck. Knock it off. No, he says, here's how I'm going to heal you. The Christian who's living the victorious life is the one who's in submission to the Lord. They're experiencing the power of the resurrection. You're starting right now in this life. That's the amazing part about it. You're starting now. You're not not fully done yet. And and I I long for that day, man. There's days when I, we went backpacking with the youth kids recently, and I'm like trying to keep up, you know, with the fastest kids in the group, and I'm practically running up the mountain. And I remember getting up to to Blue Lake, and it's like uh, 10,500 feet, so I'm just like sucking wind. (laughs) And uh, I was with Wyatt. I was trying to keep up with Wyatt. And um, and we get up there, and and my legs are like wobbling. <laughs> like they start cramping up on both sides. But I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> but I'll tell you, don't I wish I wasn't in this perishable body? Don't I wish I was in that, that my 16 year old body? It was a lot lighter, less, <laughs> less to carry up a mountain. But also, I didn't, definitely recovered a lot faster. Yeah, there's days where I long for that resurrection body. There's days where I long for the, that resurrection where I won't even be tempted by sin anymore. It'll be done away with. The work will be finished. But until that day, I get to start experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection, the victory over sin and the law every single day, if I'm willing. 
if I'm willing to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want your victory today. And I want to encourage you in that. In closing, let me just talk about the rest of Mark here. Chapters uh, 16, verses 9 through 20. I'm going to briefly talk about this, but we're not going to get into it all tonight. Uh, we're, we'll focus a little bit more in, in the uh, next week. Chapters 16 through 9, you'll, you'll, most of you will have a little mark in your Bibles or it will be in bracket, double brackets or whatever. And it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And uh, sometimes this causes a lot of concern for Christians. Like, wait a minute. This, this isn't in the Bible. It's not trustworthy. What do I do with it? Let me just explain what this is saying. And this will be the boring part. Uh, but here's what I want you to know. First, you can trust your Bibles absolutely. The thing about the Word of God and, or the Bibles we have today, we would say that the Bible is inerrant in the original autographs. Okay? That, that's the, the original autograph of Mark, the, the autograph copy, the one he actually wrote. We would say the Bible is completely inerrant. It's perfect. Okay, we don't have the original autograph of Mark. And the first question is, well, why don't we have that original autograph? I mean, if, can't God preserve his word? Well, yes, he can, and he does very faithfully, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I really believe if, if we did have the original written copies of the word of God, which church would hold those? And how would they abuse that? How would they say, well, we have the original copy, so if you, if you want to be in the right denomination or the right church... You're going to come see the original copies. And how many people do you think would start worshiping the copies, the pages, versus the God of the book? See, so I believe that, that, that God in his wisdom has not allowed us to have the original autographs. But compared to any other book in antiquity, there is an embarrassment of manuscripts, an embarrassment of wealth we have for how many manuscripts we have. From, from early antiquity, we have a, a, over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. That is an amazing amount. We're talking more than any other book in antiquity. I think uh, Homer's Iliad, which uh, the earliest copies we have are almost 1,000 years after Homer wrote, 643 copies from the earliest being 1,000 after. The New Testament, our earliest fragments and copies of manuscripts date back as early as 150 A.D. That means that the people who knew the disciples, the people who were being discipled by the disciples themselves, those apostles of the church, knew them. They knew that they wrote these letters and they had copies, these early, early copies. It's incredible. When we go out beyond those earliest uh, manuscripts from antiquity, and we start looking at translations, translations into other languages, Aramaic, um, Latin, so on. We, the, the manuscript evidence jumps up to over 25,000 copies. Copies and copies and copies. In fact, we can trace a copy to its kind of lineage, where it came from, what part of the world it came from. There's three major text types. We have the Alexandrian text type, which is from the area of Egypt. Um, it was a major center for the church after um, the persecution broke out in Jerusalem. And then, uh, and then we also have the Syrian text type, which is Antioch, Syria, which we read about in the book of Acts, where they're sending out missionaries from Paul and, and Barnabas. And then we also have the, what's called the Byzantine text type, or the majority text type, which is from Asia, like the Turkey area. 
And that, and that, that text type, is, well, the reason it's called the majority text type is because that's the area it was most copied in. They just had copies and copies and copies. We have so many copies that when a scribe or a copyist made an error in a, in a passage, we can trace it back to where the error happened because we have so many copies and copies. Well, what this is saying in Mark is when looking at the, the evidence, there's two major text types or two major manuscripts, one being the um, Vaticanus. And oh, let me, I'm sorry, I'm going to pull up my notes real fast here for this part. Um, there we go. Sorry. Apologize for this. I want to make sure I get this part right. Okay. So the two major text types that we have are, um, or not text types, the two major manuscripts that have the entire New Testament don't have this verses 9 through 20 in them. And um, our translators of the New Testament want to make sure that we know, hey, these earlier manuscripts don't have it. We're not hiding anything. We're not trying to cover something up. It's, here's what we have. Now, those early manuscripts uh, date back to um, 300 years after Christ. It's the whole New Testament. And they left room for this ending, but they didn't put it in. Okay, now paper was not cheap, paper was expensive, and whenever they would fill out a book or, or a copy, uh, in the, the original text, what you, or these copies text, you, what you see is it's all in Greek letters, no spaces, no punctuation, it's all just poof, up there, and, and they fill up every bit of the page. Well, here in Mark, they leave room for these, these verses 9 through 20, but they didn't put them in. However, early patristic fathers, fathers of the church, they wrote about these verses, even quoting these verses from Mark 9 through 20 in, in their writings, not as not valid or, or a part of the original Mark, but they would actually quote them in their writings to defend certain things or whatever the case. And so, so as far as the external evidence goes, some of the earliest manuscripts know they don't have 9 through 20, but the early church fathers quote 9 through 20. As far as the internal evidence goes of Mark, this is definitely different vocabulary in the Greek than Mark has used throughout his whole gospel. It's, it's, different, it's got a different feel to it in the Greek. It's different words, words that he hadn't used at all in the earlier part of the gospel that he's now using in, this, in these last verses. So the thought is, we don't believe that this is Markin. Okay, this isn't Mark. The scholars don't believe that this is from Mark. However, I want you to know that one that doesn't nullify whether it belongs as part of the canon of Scripture. We just don't believe that it was Mark necessarily in the Scriptures. But I also want you to realize there's nothing said in this passage. Well, there's one little part that hasn't happened in Scripture, but but there's nothing said in here that would go against the theological truths of Scripture or what we read about in the book of Acts or the New Testament later on. So all these things we find are very biblical. They're all part of the canon of Scripture. So it is possible that, one, um, the ending of Mark was broken off and cut off. It's possible that somebody added it on. Um, if Mark did end in chapter 16, verse 8... Um, 
I, I very much think he was saying to the, the church in Rome, who he's writing this gospel to originally, hey, go talk, these are the women, go talk to them, okay? Uh, but there's no reason to question the integrity of the scripture. That's, that's the main thing I want you to realize. And I personally treat this as the gospel, part of the canon of scripture. I don't believe that there's any reason to pull it out. Um, I, when you read the early church fathers quoting from it, you read, I mean, they were good with this, this ending. Uh, there's nothing in it that would be, seem heretical or that would go against any other teaching or that did not happen. There's no reason to me that you would throw this portion out. But I want you to know that that's why we have these brackets around this last portion of Mark. Okay, well, that took a lot of time. Um, <laughs> So I think we're going to end up saving that for next week, um, this last portion of Mark. But let me just finish with verse 9. Now, uh, w- uh, now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they had heard that he was alive and had seen by, uh, been seen by her, they would not believe it. And so the disciples still were questioning in unbelief that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. Let me close with this. Is there an aspect that you're struggling with in belief? Is there there an area of your life where you still got unbelief, that you're unwilling to surrender to the Lord Jesus? You're holding it back. Maybe you're even struggling with the whole idea of surrendering all, really believing that Jesus will raise you from the dead just like he himself rose from the dead. I want to encourage you, pray the prayer we read earlier of the man whose son was demon-possessed. He said, Jesus, earlier on in the book of Mark, Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I want to know, is this true? And I guarantee you, God will answer. Jesus tells us if we ask, he will answer. If we seek, he'll be found. If we knock, the door will be opened. There's no reason that you should not pursue God in this. No man can persuade you, but I will say the living word of God will wash you, will change you if you merely start seeking him. That's what I did. I prayed one night, Lord, I believe there's a God. Which God are you? I want to know if you're true. Are you the God of the Bible? That journey started this insatiable hunger in me where I started reading the word and being blown away by it. And when I finally got to Jesus' death on the cross, I'll never forget for the first time in my life realizing it wasn't about my goodness. It wasn't about how good I was before God. It was actually about all of my brokenness. I remember falling down on the floor of my parents' living room, weeping, trying to get lower than the floor. I was just laid out on the floor saying, Jesus, I want you. I want what you did for me in my life. I want to encourage you, if you struggle with unbelief at all, you pray that prayer. Lord, I believe, just help me with my unbelief and let God answer you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for tonight. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we can trust your word, Lord, that the evidence is overwhelming, Lord. And we thank you more more so than the evidence for its historical reliability, but God, for the truths that it speaks into our lives, that it has the power to change us, the power to wash us and cleanse us, the power to transform. We thank you for that living, active word that goes down deep into our souls and our hearts, every bit of us, Lord.
And tonight I want to pray for each and every one in this room. Lord, bless them, keep them. And if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm ready to follow you. Thank you for dying for me on that cross. I turn from my sin now. I'm ready to follow after you. Thank you for dying for me. Be the Lord of my life. Lord, we thank you that you are always accessible and we can experience that very same power of your resurrection. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.